Well, we're back. I was going to do this last week, and I had to prepare four messages for the Purity Conference, and then I had to teach on Sunday night, and it became obvious towards the end of the week that I was desperate. And so I had Justin come and preach, and if you, haven't, if you weren't here last week, you need to get the tape. It was a great message on the doctrine of repentance from Psalm 51. This morning we're going to return to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and finish up the qualifications of an elder. This is part 5 in the series that we've been working through. And uh, we're going to finish this up and then in the verses that follow we'll be looking at uh, deacons and what deacons are and why the church needs to have deacons and what deacons do and uh, how deacons are different than elders. It has been good to hear some of the responses from many people who before this series had really no idea uh, what an elder was. Um, You talk to people and uh, they just said, well, I I never knew elders were like this and I never knew elders did that or were supposed to do this. And, uh, you know, before when they asked for people who, who would be nominated for elder, I just picked out guys who were good guys and now I think I'm going to to kind of pay more attention and maybe uh, look a little harder and uh, think about it before I put people up there. And that's great, because one of the reasons I chose First Timothy and uh, to launch kind of uh, my maiden voyage here in this church is that its emphasis is on leadership. And every single church that is pleasing to God has leaders that are pleasing to God. The church kind of takes its character from its leaders. And if the leaders are godly, if they have uh, evangelistic zeal, if they want to uh, uh, promote sound doctrine, if they want to worship in truthfulness, if they want to um, be the kind of men that God has called them to be, that will then affect the church. And... The opposite is true also. If the leaders are weak, if the leaders do not understand sound doctrine, if the leaders aren't doing evangelization themselves, if they aren't sharing their faith themselves, if they aren't um, being what God has called them to be, then the church often will not be what God wants it to be. So it's really a critical issue. So the single greatest need in any healthy, God-honoring church is to have healthy, qualified, God-honoring elders. Elders who are trained in the scriptures and sound doctrine, who will be able to teach and model what it means to be a mature Christian. And so far, as we've come to the text, um, we've looked through uh, 14 of the 16 qualifications We've looked at these and uh, just kind of gone through at a rapid rate. And let me just give you a little bit of review. We've been away from this for several weeks because of Easter and things. And as I go through here, you'll probably be reminded some of what we learned. And then we'll get into the last uh, two qualifications found in verses 6 and 7 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. We looked, first of all, that an elder must be above reproach. Above reproach, which we learned meant free from legitimate accusation, literally unable to get a hold of. You can't 
lay blame to this person legitimately. It describes a person that cannot have um, uh, any um, uh, legitimate accusation brought against them because of some sin in their life or whatever. Secondly, he must be the husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man, a man devoted to one woman. Not just a, a man who is married to one woman, but who is devoted to one woman in two different aspects. One, he is morally pure towards his wife. He is not always thinking about other women who aren't his wife, and so it brings in the moral sense. And also, by being a one-woman man means that he would be a man who would love his wife um, as Christ loved the church, and he would do those things that God would want him to do as a man of God, as a man who would love his wife. Third, he is to be temperate. This means clear-headed or able to think biblically about situations that uh, a leader would be able to encounter things uh, in the church. He could deal with them, be level-headed about them, have common sense, so to speak. He is also to be prudent. That is the fourth thing mentioned in the text. Describes a person who is sober-minded, disciplined about spiritual matters. They are able to make wise spiritual decisions based off the scriptures. We have respectable, which is the attitude of living your life and such a way that others can see that you live for God. They can see your godly character and they can see your godly life. Six, they are to be hospitable. This is to use your home to minister to strangers, especially Christian strangers, uh, to use your home as a base of ministry. As an elder, you need to have people in your home. They need to see how your home is, what your home is like, what you do there, what is happening there. So your home should be a model of what their home needs to be. They need to see how your kids act. Um, you know, when you, you know, don't have them under the thumb and they're sitting next to you in the pew. They need to see what your home is like. You need to be hospitable and use your house and resources as a blessing to minister to others. Seven, you are to be able to teach. An elder must know um, sound doctrine, be able to communicate sound doctrine to others. He must, in Paul's words to Titus, be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict, which implies that he must not just have a superficial knowledge of the scripture, but enough that he can take somebody to the word and show them what the scriptures say and what they mean and why error is error from the scriptures. Eight, an elder is not to be addicted to wine. He must not be uh, characterized as one who is enslaved to or a consumer of much alcohol. Nine, he must not be pugnacious, literally a brawler. One who's given to wine is often a brawler. Uh, pugnacious, it means obnoxious or contentious, somebody who's always looking for a fight. Um, ten, he must be gentle. This would be the opposite of pugnacious. This is a person who is kind, quick to forgive, not impulsive. He must be peaceable. This means uh, wanting to make peace, reluctant to fight. He uh, wants to uh, reason together. He wants to look at the scriptures. He wants to to um, bring reconciliation. Uh, he's peaceable. Twelve, free from the love of money. An elder must not love money. He must make, not make money his God or the major focus of his life um, because uh, those things we learn in chapter 6 are a snare and uh, trap many men and plunge them into ruin. 
13, he must be one who manages his own household well. This means he must have a household, uh, and uh, that household must be operated well, managed well. This would include his wife and his children and his finances, just everything related to his household. He must be a good manager of his own household. And then a subcategory of his own household is keeping his children under control with all dignity. This would be um, necessary as a, a man's children reflect his ability to manage his own household. And so when you look at an elder's uh, children, they reflect his ability to manage the church. Um, if he does not shepherd his own children, he cannot shepherd the church of God and the children of God. And uh, Paul puts the little rhetorical statement at the end, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And the implied answer is he can't. So this morning we come to the last two qualifications of an elder found in 1 Timothy 3, 6 and 7. And each qualification is first stated and then a rationale or reason behind it is given. This is what Paul did when he talked about um, an elder's children being under control and not accused of rebellion or dissipation. He then gives the rationale, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And so he says, this is what they must do, and this is why. Well, these last two qualifications are just like that. Um, he states what they must be, and then he kind of just gives a little sentence of explanation. And that's what we're going to look at this morning as we look at verse 6 and 7. The first thing we notice, if you look in verse 6, it says, And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Now, the whole qualification here is not a new convert. And you can just stop there for a moment. What does he mean by this? What does he mean by not a new convert? It really means not a novice or not a recent convert. Somebody who is new in the faith. The Greek word is the same word we get neophyte from. He is not to be a neophyte, uh, literally a sapling, something newly planted. He's not to be a newly planted Christian, planted in the faith that is. He must be some Somebody who is well established. You know, somebody recently um, gave me some uh, roses, two rose bushes, and uh, those rose bushes are neophytes. Um, the the nurseries get those things in the middle of winter, and they're called bare roots. I mean, you pull them out, and they're just like three stumps on there. There's no roots, and then they pot them up and uh, put a you know 25 cents worth of soil, and then they they sell them to you for three times as much as you know you can buy on bare root. But the reason they do is they start to root. Well, I took those, and then I put them into bigger pots. And right now, because they are newly planted, I could just go up there and just pull them right out. You see, if I leave them in there for several years, they get so well-rooted that they cannot be easily pulled out. And that's what he's talking about here. Newly converted Christians are like newly planted roses or whatever. They're fragile. Um, they're easily uprooted because they don't have their roots deep into the scriptures, because their roots are not deep into the word of God and they have not developed uh, godly disciplines in their life. They're uprooted easy. And so to take somebody like that and to thrust them into a place of leadership is just to beg for disaster. It's just to ask for that person's destruction. And you may think to yourself, well, why would, why would a church even put a new convert into a position of leadership? Well, usually this happens when uh, the church doesn't know any different. Uh, 
The church has never been trained. They don't know what an elder is. They don't know what an elder is supposed to do. And so when it comes time to select elders, they just find somebody who's a good guy. And then they put that good guy into leadership. And he may be a good guy, but he is not a mature believer. He is not disciplined. He is not sound in doctrine. He is not able to spot error and refute those who contradict. He's, He's a good guy, but he's a new convert. And then what happens is, is that person is then set up like a target and Satan often shoots them down. Now, this is often seen among famous people and movie stars. And, you know, we all have heard the stories of, you know, some some movie star, some famous person that becomes a born again believer. And it's kind of neat, you know, when somebody does that and you hope it's true. It's like, oh, yeah, man, that's great, man. Oh, so-and-so, oh, man, they have a major influence, man. They're super famous, you know. They, they get, they're solid in the Lord, you know. That would be great, you know, because then they can really impact the world for Christ. And it's fun to think about what they might be able to do because of their position or their influence or their fame or whatever. But what happens is, is even though they're baby Christians, saplings, they're often immediately thrust into positions of leaderships because they are famous. And then we all know what happens. The media then pounces upon them like lions and uh, begins to ask them all these hard questions, which they're, they're clueless about. I mean, they're baby Christians. I mean, they're just out of the incubator. And they're asking them all these hard questions, and oftentimes they don't know the scriptures well enough to give a biblical answer, and then they oftentimes spread unbiblical answers, and they're teaching false doctrine, and in the end, they oftentimes end up doing more harm to Christianity than they do good. They are new converts made leaders too soon. Recently in a local newspaper, um, it commented on uh, the dress of this Christian pop singer, and uh, this is what the article said. Um, The singer, and we'll forget her name, uh, whose skin-tight, barely-there fashions of recent months have brought complaints from fans of her good girl image, insists, I want to prove that girls can still be sexy and stand for good things. The singer's a vocal Christian and the daughter of a preacher. The article went on to say, she does not feel wearing revealing outfits compromises her views. She says, I have been wearing short skirts, um, uh, bikinis all my life. And that has not changed who I am or what I believe in, end quote. That's pretty pathetic. The word sexy, according to Webster's dictionary, means concerned predominantly or exclusively with sex, erotic. The Bible teaches that that sort of mentality is reserved for harlots, not Christians. This is the kind of thing that Paul is warning against here. You take somebody who doesn't know any better, they're a new convert, you throw them into the limelight, and what happens? They end up bringing reproach upon the church and reproach upon the name of Christ rather than promoting what is true and holy and just and pure. And notice at the end of verse 6 what Paul's rationale is behind not putting a new convert. He says, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. You put somebody into leadership who is a neophyte in the faith, and they're easily rooted, uprooted. They become conceited oftentimes. They think and say, well, you know, I haven't been a Christian that long, but now I'm an elder. I'm important. You need to do what I say. I am the leader and you are the slave. 
And they don't understand that what, what, it, what it even means to be an elder. They don't understand the weight of the responsibility. All they think is that now I'm an elder, I get to call the shots. But they can't spot error. They don't have a grasp of, of sound doctrine. They can't give a hope for, for the faith that they have. They can't teach others what they know because they don't even know what they know. And one of the great temptations coming with leadership is this whole idea of pride or conceit. The word in the Greek literally means wrapped up in smoke. That's what it means. They become all wrapped up in smoke. I mean, you just picture some guy um, in a telephone booth with four big green cigars. And he lights them all up and just starts puffing on them until the whole phone booth is just filled up with smoke and he can't see anymore. That's what it's talking about here. The guy's pride just causes him to get so puffed up and so self-centered and so me-oriented that he can't even see the truth. He is blinded by the smoke of his own pride and conceit. A man can begin to think that they are something when they are really nothing. They begin to get puffed up or lifted up with pride and then comes the great fall. Proverbs 11.2 says this, When pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 16.18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Proverbs 29.23 says, A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. And as a consequence of that, notice what the, ter- the text says. Paul says they fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Because of their lack of maturity, they fall into this condemnation incurred by the devil. Now the phrase fall into is an interesting word. It's the word Paul uses here, and then he uses it in a couple other places, but let me just give you some examples of literal falling, and then we'll look at one other text that Paul uses, actually in 1 Timothy. And, and this is what Jesus said in Matthew 12:11 when he talked about the sheep falling into the ditch. It's the same type of thing. It's the same word Jesus used when he talked about the blind leading the blind in Luke 6.39. The blind lead the blind, they both what? Fall into the ditch. Now, if you've ever watched figure skaters uh, in the Olympics, then you've probably seen what Paul's talking about here. You see these people out there, they're, they're on the ice, they're on display for everybody to see the, the world is watching them. And they're very graceful and they're doing all sorts of tricks and twirls and, what, and all of a sudden they wipe out on the ice. And everybody in the crowd goes, oh, and you feel so sorry for them because here they've practiced for years and they've, they're all sprawled out on the ice very ungracefully. Well, that's what happens when you take this new convert and you put them into a position of leadership and then they get conceited and then they have to be removed from their office. And the church says, ooh. And reproach comes upon the name of Christ and on the rest of the elders, because they wonder, well, I wonder if the other elders are this way. I wonder if other people are this way. And it begins to have a really damaging effect on the church. But we are not talking about 
literal falls here, but spiritual falls. Look over at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. Here is just one example in the same book of another temptation that leaders often fall into. Warning against greed, Paul says in verse 9, 1 Timothy 6, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Same word there, they fall into. And then he goes on to say how they basically impale themselves on their own greed. Like Saul, who fell on his sword to kill himself, or a spear. So these men, by their own greed and covetousness and desire to make money their idol, then impale themselves on their own sin. And that's what he's talking about here. A spiritual fall. A fall into some sort of sin. Now, all three of these instances, um, whether you're talking about the sheep that falls into the ditch, or the blind who leads the blind man into the pit... Or this leader who has got caught in the greed and covetousness, the love of money. All of these things describe something that happens suddenly. I mean, if you've ever uh, lived in a place where uh, it's been icy, uh, you you know how this is. I remember one time in Idaho, I was uh, walking. We had the steep driveway and I was going to school in high school and, and there was packed snow on it. And I had my hands in my pocket and uh, I had these new boots, which, you know, were real, had gnarly tread on them. So I was trusting in my boots to keep me from falling. And uh, I took about three steps down the driveway, and my feet just shot out from under me, and I hit square on my back. And then, you know, the first thing you do is you get up to see if anybody saw you. <laughs> so then I got up and thought, man, that was a slippery spot. Started walking down again. Whew, Bang, right on my back again. I got up and looked again. And you'd think I would, I would have figured this out. But sometimes we're slow. At least I am. And uh, so I thought, okay, it's kind of slippery here. These boots aren't cutting it. And so I started walking with my hands out this time. And uh, it would be hard to describe the gyrations my body went through when I hit the next slippery piece of, of ice. But uh, I ended up catching myself on all fours and didn't throw out my back or anything. I was young. And, uh, and that's what he's talking about here. It's a slip. It's a fall. And falls happen suddenly. They happen unexpectedly. Just like the figure skater in the ice. He's, they're, they're going along and all of a sudden, wham, they're wiped out. And that's what happens to leaders who fall into conceit. When Paul says they fall into conceit, he's not talking about some minor thing. He's talking about a fall, something drastic that happens. And when the church doesn't know what makes an elder qualified, they think, well, this guy is, this guy is really successful in the business world. I, he'd be a good leader. Or, you know, this guy is the CEO of such and such a company. He, he leads a lot of people. I'm going I'm to I'm nominate him for elder. No, no. That is to court disaster. 
The leadership of the world and the leadership of the church are pulls apart. Leadership in the world is all about power and prestige and influence and personal achievement and assertiveness and politics and sales. The worldly leader is seen as the top of the heap and everybody in the company is underneath them. The person that everyone serves and obeys. We all try and do what the leader says. He's, he's the one who commands us to do and if we don't, we're fired. That's worldly leadership. When disciples were arguing about who was the greatest, Jesus said this to them in Luke 22, verses 25 and 26. Listen. He said, And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors, which was, you know, just a slam. That was like a sarcastic remark. They were anything but benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. The youngest had the least influence. The servant had no influence. And that's what Jesus said a spiritual leader is. The spiritual leader is not the worldly leader. He understands that the power belongs to the Lord, that God is the one who has given him the gifts. God is the one who has matured him. God is the one who has given him everything he has. God is the one who has called him. God is the one who has given him the opportunities. And it is a huge opportunity, and he's going to incur a stricter judgment because he is even doing this ministry. It's a very humbling thing. It's hard work. He gets to do all the things nobody else in the church wants to do, like go confront unrepentant sinners and things like that. It's not very fun. It is a job. It is a work. But it is a good work. The church is not a business. It is not a corporation. It's not to be run by the Wall Street Journal or whoever the biggest selling business guru is of the month. The church is the body of Christ. And Christ is the head of the church. And the head tells the body what to do in the word of God. And the head expects the leaders to know him and to know his word and to make sure the church does what the head says the church is to do. We're merely under shepherds over the shepherd, the good shepherd who is Christ. A new convert often falls into the sin of pride and conceit and then they come into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Now what does this mean? The word condemnation often means Judgment, it's often translated judgment, is a judicial verdict. They come under a judicial verdict. Now, there's two basic ways you can take this phrase. One way is to do it like the NAS uh, translated it, when it's, it's the, it's the um, condemnation incurred by the devil, like the devil is the one who is, who is condemning the person who has fallen into conceit. But that's not the best translation. The Greek literally reads, the condemnation of the devil. And the second and better way to translate it is like the New International Version or the New King James Version. It translates it this. The King, New King James Version translates it, Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Or the NIV says, He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. It's not that the devil is doing the condemning here, it's that the person who falls into conceit gets the same judgment the devil received. That's what it means. Now, why do I say this? Well, if you remember, at the end of chapter 2, Paul has uh, talked about women's roles, and he's talking about 
how the creation account in Genesis 2 and 3 in the fall are reasons for women's and men's roles in the church. And then he starts to explain men and how they must be qualified in order for them to be elders. And and verses 2 through 6 are all just one sentence, one big giant sentence. And so the last thing he has talked about is Genesis 2 and 3 and the reason for men's and women's roles. And so having that on his mind, it seems like he's launching into this whole idea of these people not falling under the same condemnation incurred by the devil, which we better translated the same judgment as the devil received. Now, what does Genesis 2 and 3 teach us? Well, it teaches us that Satan was fallen. All of a sudden in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. And you wonder, well, how did he get there? Well, he fell from heaven. He was a holy angel. He was created good. He was put into a position of leadership. And then he became proud and conceited. And he was removed from that position. And that is the same thing that happens to a new convert who is put into a position of leadership and then falls into pride and conceit. He is removed from office. That's what Paul is talking about here. And of course, when he's removed from office, then there are consequences of that. The church leadership is under suspicion. He may bring reproach upon the name of Christ and uh, just, you know, the whole, all the stuff that goes with it when, when leaders fall from their their stool. Now it's easy to see why um, Paul says this. When a person is put into leadership and they act in an ungodly way, then what happens? Well, the new believers who or visitors are coming, they think, well, that guy is a leader and look what he did. And the people who have been there for a while think, well, gosh, you know, we nominated the people, but the elders are supposed to screen them. Now, how come the elders didn't know this? And so it just brings problems into the church. And Satan loves this. He loves it. He loves to bring suspicion, doubt. Um, he, he wants the congregation to be against the elders. He wants, he wants the congregation not to be submissive to the elders, not to highly esteem them, not to uh, obey them as those who have charge over their souls, but to be against them, to be chafing against them. That is Satan's goal. That is his plan. That is his strategy. And the greatest tragedy is that a godly leaders produce, ungodly leaders and godly leaders produce people just like themselves. The ungodly leader produces ungodly followers and the godly leader produces godly followers. And so if you have somebody who's immature, he will produce people who act in the same immature way. Like Hosea 4.9 says, and it will be like people, like priests. The priests create people who are just like them. And in that time, the priests were wicked, the people were wicked. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, a pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone who, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. The greatest tragedy is that leaders produce others just like themselves. That's why this whole idea of nominating elders is not a popularity contest. It's not who's who in the business world contest. It's who is the most godly and gifted and qualified according to the word of God. Now, the second thing he mentions, the last qualification, is in verse 7. 
Elders must have a good reputation outside the church. Paul has finished his sentence in verse 6, and now he begins verse 7. And what's interesting is when Paul starts the sentence in verse 2, the first thing he says is, an overseer then must be above reproach. Then he finished, goes all the way through all of those things to describe what that means. And then in verse 7, he begins again. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Another interesting phrase. Now, the phrase must have, when it says, and he must have, is a present active verb, which means he must at the present and must continually have a good reputation. And any time he does not have a good reputation, then he would not be qualified to lead in the church. Paul says a man is qualified to be a leader when he is continually and presently, repeatedly of good reputation. Now, this would not include things he did um, as an unbeliever. We know that Paul was a persecutor, a murderer, throwing people in prison, a blasphemer, a violent aggressor, and then he became a Christian. Those things did not qualify him. They were just testimonies of the grace of God. And it probably wouldn't refer to somebody who was very new in the Lord, because those people who are new in the Lord are just getting their act together. They're trying to, to figure out what it means to be a Christian and learn what the Scriptures say. But when you're talking about a person who is a believer, who has been a believer for a sustained period of time, who knows the Scriptures, who know what God's will is, and then they fall into some gross sin in the public. They, they get caught cheating on their taxes or defrauding somebody or, or getting in trouble with the law or committing adultery or murder or any sort of premeditated, deviating, you know, major sin. They're disqualified. They're disqualified because now when the church looks at them, even though this happened a year or two or three years ago, people come into the church and they say, that person is a leader? That person is an example here. And then what happens? They bring reproach upon them. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 explains the necessity of being disciplined and self-controlled in all things. And this is what he says. Listen. In verses 26 and 27 of 1 Corinthians 9. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Once you have to, once you admit to any sort of premeditated sin, once you say, hey, this is some sort of deviant activity that I've been engaging in, and I know I engage in it, and I've done this thing. The race is over. Because you will never be able to be above reproach, because you aren't. A man says he's a Christian, he says he believes uh, in submitting to the government, but then he is convicted of tax fraud. A man says, oh yeah, uh, you need to be honest in your business dealings, but he's dishonest in his business dealings. A man teaches morality in the church, but he lives an immoral lifestyle outside the church. And these are the kind of things that Paul is warning against. If the person has the bad reputation, don't let him be a leader. He can serve, but just don't put him up as a leader. Because he is going to bring reproach upon himself and the church. The phrase good reputation, where it says in verse 7, he must have a good reputation, is the Greek word for uh, martyria. It's the word we get martyr from. It's somebody who gives a good testimony of Christ, basically. 
A witness is what he's talking about. He must have a good Christian witness outside the church. And what is at stake here is the church's witness to the world. You see, leaders are models not only in the church, but they represent the church to the world as examples of what it means to be a godly believer. And if they are bad witnesses, they bring reproach upon the name of Christ, upon themselves, and upon those in the church that they belong to. And we have all heard of the scandals where leaders run off with a secretary or another elder's wife, or they get caught pilfering money, or get caught in lies, or who get arrested by the police, and get, get caught down there by some policewoman masquerading as a prostitute, and they go, and all of a sudden, oh, Pastor so-and-so, yeah, he got caught. Of course, the L.A. Times likes to put that on the front page. Now, how many people would buy produce from a store that all puts all their rotten fruit on display? I wouldn't. Think about it. Would you want to eat in a restaurant that had a reputation of poisoning its customers? No. Paul goes on to give the reason why a man should be made an elder. He says, in verse 7, notice this, so that... He must be a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, notice the similar wording here. Paul says the man of poor reputation outside the church falls into, same word there, a sudden, all of a sudden fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, the word devil here is the same word accuser. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. It's literally accuser in the Greek with a definite article, the accuser, and they often translate it the devil. A snare is a booby trap, which is designed to capture birds or small animals. When I grew up, I loved, I loved to make snares. They never worked, but I loved to make them. I remember one time we had this, this, uh, I think it was a skunk in our campsite, and so I made this snare all up and made this little hoop and made this little bait stick and got it all tweaked out and mashed some Wonder Bread on there and had this little bunch of fishing line. I thought, I'm just going to catch it you know, in the middle of the night. And it'll be away from the... I never thought about what it's going to do and it's going to stink up the campsite. That was... Catching it was everything. And in the middle of the night, sure enough, it came. And sure enough, it hit the bait stick and sure enough, the snare tripped but I had made the loop so big in order to catch it that by the time the loop closed up, it was still on the ground. So it just walked away. <laughs> but if they work right, it catches them suddenly and unaware. That's what a snare is. Just like a fall is something sudden and unaware, so a snare catches somebody suddenly and unaware. And this person who is not of good reputation with those outside the church, all of a sudden, suddenly falls into reproach. And the devil snares them. The devil here is the one who is the snarer. He is the hunter. And he is looking for opportunities to disqualify and bring reproach upon the name of Christ. I mean, this is his business. A lot of times we think that Satan is, you know, working through the church of Satan, you know, or whatever. Now, he likes... He likes the most conservative, evangelical, Bible-preaching churches. And the reason he likes those churches is he can, he can bring lots of reproach upon the name of Christ through those churches. 
He wants leaders to fall. Let's say a man's been a Christian for a time, he's grown to the Lord, he's gotten in trouble with the law, or has appeared in the newspaper as a person convicted of a fraud or some other sin, then the man comes up to some church and, and people don't know about this, and he's made an elder, and after serving for a while, somebody comes in from the outside, some unbeliever who knows what he did, and comes to church and begins to talk, and people, you know what this guy did? Do you know this guy did this? And, you know, he's, an, he's a leader here? And pretty soon there's this, you know, wildfire of rumor just rippling through the church. They did this. And so pretty soon the other elders, they go, oh, really? And so they begin to investigate. And sure enough, it's true. The guy has done this great deviant behavior and he's hid it from them. And they're the ones who recommended him. The congregation is the one who approved him. And now this unbeliever then heaps reproach upon them. And then he leaves and says, boy, that church is just full of a bunch of hypocrites. I mean, they, did, they, they actually had this guy here as their leader. This information, then, is what is used as the snare of Satan. The man's sin outside the church has brought reproach upon the name of Christ. The church's witness in the world has been marred. The leadership who selected him comes under suspicion. The church then begins to wonder what other leader did, what other thing. And Satan just loves it. He loves this. And this is the snare that's being talked about here. This is the snare that bringing reproach upon this person happens. One week a man is a spiritual leader, a model of virtue, and then all of a sudden he falls into reproach. And the devil says, ha. You see, the devil wants more than anything to promote an unqualified person to a position of leadership. Why? So he can get them up there into major position of influence and then kick their feet out from under them by exposing them. He loves it. That is his snare. So, from these last two principles, what have we learned? We've learned this through all of these principles that when we come this fall... Fall will be here soon. You know how summers run away. Pretty soon you'll be starting to plan what you're going to do in the summer, and every single weekend will be filled up, and pretty soon they'll all be gone, and you'll be looking forward to next summer. And in the fall, we'll be asking you to give us names for men who are godly, who meet the qualifications of an elder, and uh, I think deacon too. And we'll be asking you to give us those names. Well, don't take the nice guy. Don't take the guy who, oh, this guy's a fun guy. This guy's great in the business world. You nominate those people who you know have families that are well-managed, children who are behaved, people who you know are committed to studying God's word, who have godly characteristics, who are sound in doctrine. And those are the people you need to put up because those are the people God requires in the church. Also, pray for your present elders that they might not fall into conceit and get snared by the devil, that they would not have some sin in their life that all of a sudden would pop up and bring reproach upon all the elders in the church. Pray for them. Satan wants nothing more than to disqualify elders in the church. And thank God for the men whom God has given this church. Because they are serving you. A lot of people wonder, you know, what do the elders do? Well, just about everything. 
You know, what, what, I, mean, I mean, what does it mean? Is it just a position? No. It's a whole bunch of meetings. Then you just, all you have to do is have your normal 40, 50-hour work week and then have your ministry and then go to meetings and then go to other meetings and other meetings and then do homework and prepare to teach and confront people and visit people in the hospital and on and on and on. And it's, it's hard. Try and maintain your own walk, try and take care of your own family, try and take care of the church, try and do your job. It's a big, big task. So pray for your elders and be thankful that God has given us some great men. And then next week when we come back, we'll be getting into deacons. What are deacons and how do they differ from elders? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that your word is so crystal clear. We thank you that you have told us what kind of men will benefit the church the most. Father, I pray for all the elders here, including myself, that you would help us to be men who match up to these qualifications more and more each day. Father, that we would be men who would be above reproach. Father, help us to be wise in our selection of leaders in this church. And Father, may the leaders of this church model what this church needs to be so that the rest of us can follow and be submissive and willingly do so because of the godly character we see in the lives of those who lead us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're glad you're here. And uh, if you need anybody to pray with you, if you want to talk to anybody, uh, we have a prayer room over here. There'll be some individuals over there. They'd love to talk with you, maybe talk with you about what it means to be a Christian. And uh, there'll be individuals over there. The rest of you, have a great week. You're dismissed.